Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the Oscar-nominated cinematographer for All Quiet on the Western Front, James Friend, the sound designer Marcus Stemmler, and production designer Christian M. Goldbeck, followed by Dan Baer's interview with the Oscar-nominated makeup artist, Hiker Merker. We hope you appreciate this behind-the-scenes look at All Quiet on the Western Front, nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best International Feature of the Year. So getting into it specifically, one of the most obvious aspects that stands out with this particular film is that probably 80% of the shots are in the elements. There's lots of mud, there's lots of rain, there's lots of snow. And as I understand it, it was a pretty practical shoot so when it looked muddy and it looked cold it was so tell me a little bit about the experience of really shooting in the elements like that i mean we wanted to capture the elements so the best way in order to capture those elements is to be in them um and we we timed it in that time of year where the elements were pretty brutal um but uh as brutal as they were on the cast and crew they look great on camera. Um, and also they need, so the breath was real, the, you know, the red cheeks were real, the, the, the shivering was, was real, to be perfectly honest. It left very little to the imagination. So um, to be perfectly honest, I'm doing myself a bit of a uh, disservice here, but it kind of made my life and job a lot easier because... Sure. Um, because it it kind of felt more like documenting something than it did uh, engineering something. It felt more like more like capturing than um, than engineer. You know, really sort of engineering that those frames. And um, yeah, it was it was great because and, and because we were all in it together. Because it was miserable as sin. It really was. It was uh, it was tough to work in. I mean, it was the hardest film I've ever shot, you know, and I've been doing this, I've, I've been in this business for 20 years, but it's the the toughest filming experience I've ever had. But I felt like I came out the other end of it, a kind of better filmmaker, if that makes sense. Sure. And um, yeah, I just think the experience, but also the sets and the costumes and the makeup and the whole collaboration just made it really, um, it made it a pleasure because when the second you went into that environment, you know, I could put the camera on my shoulder and I could spin around 180 degrees and get, you know, complete authenticity. And I wouldn't be seeing anything that would be out of place in a World War One trench. So it, it it gave me kind of, real free reign to be more focused on the art actually yeah. than, than the than the sort of fabrication process of it. It was it was great. And also I think it really helped I, I well I liked thing it really helped the actors because it was very immersive. And you know when you're when you're there and you're in the rain and the mud and you're experiencing it and you need to deliver those emotions, I think that the it helped them, yeah. But it it made I I felt that it helped me as a as a camera person as a, as a sort of cinematographer. I heard that you uh, 
you actually really got into the experience. I heard that you got stuck down in the. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, there were there were these there were these craters that basically just gently filled up with mud, and I fell into one on, on rat one night, and um, I was I I thought that I was gonna <laughs> I thought I was gonna be reclaimed by the earth, uh, <laughs> literally, uh, but and I was sort of rescued, but it was yeah, it was horrible. It was frightening. To be perfectly honest. Well, tell me a little bit about kind of uh, demonstrating the contrast between those sequences and then whenever we go inside and we see the politicians and the generals in their very, you know, clean, pristine, wealthy, safe environments. Well, I mean, I like to think it's kind of apparent in the cinematography, but not too on the nose. But, um, you know, if there's a lot of real classical, static, solid composure with all of those frames and then when you get into the mud there is a bit more energy to the camera a bit more what you would expect than putting yourself into the the psyche of a soldier and that sort of natural en- energy and adrenaline that sort of flows through those people so yeah i mean i i think there's the sort of obvious and contrast but i like to think we did it in a an elegant way if that makes yeah. sense but um but yeah we uh myself and ed have got a real thing about composition and you know especially myself with with, with symmetry when i see something that's off it 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 spins me out to the point where ed he mocks me for it quite <laughs> sort of significantly but i think a lot can be said for really you know taking care and you know tenderizing a frame uh to the point where yeah. it's really perfect and um well perfect to my eye not to everyone's but um yeah uh, like it's uh i think a lot of care should uh, a lot of care uh, this film was predominantly shot single camera so when you shoot a picture single camera there's no excuse in the world in my experience to if you have the departments at your disposal you shouldn't take complete forensic care of a frame and yeah. uh, we had an incredible standby art director. We had an incredible crew. We had an incredible uh, that were constantly in dialogue with it. We were constantly in dialogue with each other, constantly all crowded around a monitor, saying, "Move this an inch to the right, an inch to the left, up a bit, down a bit," and um, a real collaboration, a real, real, real collaboration. And that, and uh, and you know, I never say this about my work, but I think it looks good. But that is not just because of me. It's because of uh, a combination of many people and their voices and my voices and and um or my voice and and yeah just listening and working with each other and it's great i mean it's absolutely um to say the best experience really Mm, i love that a lot of this film takes place in um pretty significant darkness there's these great scenes where it's lit by fire and flares so tell me about some of those nighttime scenes Flares are a notorious thing to work with because you're, if you're ever seeing them in vision, they are naturally like five stops overexposed and mm-hmm. almost a nightmare to expose for, especially at night. Because flares really only appear at night. Mm-hmm. So what do you expose for? Do you expose for the flare? Or do, you, or do you expose for the shadow? Or do you expose for the individual medium? So they were, um, you needed to select a format that was uh, responsible, that had the dynamic range to kind of, work within what you're asking for of an, uh, as an image but also uh, when it came to lighting tricks we had uh, this prototype at the time uh, of a lamp called an orbiter which is now readily on the market by ari lighting and it had a sensor on the side which could read the frequency and the color temperature and the intensity of a light so we fired a flare and and the sensor on the side of the lamp took hold of all that information but then we built a big softbox in the middle of the set which we transposed all that information into that softbox into this mm. big LED softbox which then converted it into a light that is kind of filmable for actors and oh, that's for, cool. you know so um you could cut from a, a flare shot of it flying through the air and then when you cut to the actors you've got the corresponding light on them mm. that, oh, that's that awesome. was taken from the flare yeah 
And as an audience member, you don't see the difference, but actually it's a source which is 300 times the size and actually most likely 300 times the brightness, to be perfectly honest. Oh, my God. Um, and it worked. It worked really nicely because it gave us the abilities to tell stories, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, they were they were hard. And the, the other thing, which is a bit of a shock in the in the film, is I went out one day um, or one night rather, and shot a load of flare tests with a, a lot of atmospheric smoke and just flares, and they were tests. They were they were just for educational purposes, but the editor and incredible director thought they were good enough to actually cut into the film oh i love that made it in the final cut yeah some of those flare shots that you see some of them are super warm and then they cut to these kind of moonlight shots which are you know quite distinctively different to be perfectly honest we couldn't balance them out too much because it just looked too looky so yeah um so yeah they they made the you know it I shot myself in the foot to a certain degree, but also I'm glad they made it in there because people obviously like looking at them. Well, I mean, they they stood out for me, which is why I asked about them. So, okay. So one thing I noticed also is that the shades of colors really kind of transitioned as the story progresses and it gets darker and sadder and Paul loses innocence. So tell me a little bit about your work with the colors over the course of the film. I think it was a real, um, it was a journey from production design to costume to everyone. But um, the colouring process, the DI process, we had this really weird luxury of grading before Christmas and then coming back after Christmas for the VFX work. But it also enabled us to have, and there wasn't a huge amount of VFX, but it enabled us to have a uh, a second go, so to speak, at the at the colouring. And a lot of it is instinctual. I mean, if you look at it, it's not an extremely colourful film. It's very heavy on the blue side and heavy on the orange side. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we refer to as the sort of silvery light in between. But it it was more about just tweaking it within that dynamic range of colour. And and actually, I, I recently saw the film not the film, but um, some shots of the film were put on a, a collage. And it was really refreshing to see it all next to each other. Yeah. Because you don't really get that luxury. Normally you just watch it in sequence, cut, mm-hmm. to cut, cut, to cut, to cut. And, it, you know, it, it, it really reminded me that we kind of did go on a bit of a journey. And it, and it was a journey. Uh, but the uh, a lot of it is... Credit to Andrew Daniel, the the colorist as well, mm-hmm. who I've worked with for years and years and years. Who pulls the best out of me, and I like to think I pull the best out of him. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but also Edward as well, because we've all collaborated together, the three of us uh, over the years, and just pushing each other and constantly challenging each other. But the film needs a a visual vocabulary which you can. You know, digital coloring is uh, a real language that everyone should embrace, and yeah. we, we we did, yeah. But it's very sort of instinctual. It's not like oh, I wanted this thing to be red, this thing to be blue. You know, this uh, it was a. Well, how do we feel about this scene? And then just you you find it as you go along, when you're on the floor photographing it, and then when you're finishing it in the grade, and it only really kind of makes sense when you take a step back and you you look at it and so, sometimes watch it without the sound and you know in silence and you kind of go well we we made the right decision or, mm. you know, or sometimes the wrong decision. Well, last question I have is uh, you have some kind of you have some tracking shots and long takes. Tell me a little bit about staging those. Um, I imagine whoever's pulling focus for you on this had a hell of a job to do too. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, a, a lot of it came from um, Edward and I locked in a hotel room for <laughs> about six to eight weeks where we were storyboarding. And the way our minds work is we don't just see in shots. We see, we would talk about an entire scene, but in its editorial form. So 
what do we want the first frame to be and and then just naturally how will will it evolve from there so we will build a sequence the way we see it in the edit and it's not discrediting an edit, an editor so at all because sven just imbued the, the the sequence but we will always see it how we would want to deliver it to an audience yeah and it's really great to see it that way because sometimes when you know what the opening shot is and you know what the closing shot is and the rest can be kind of refined for sure and it, it it gives you it gives you a, a a sharper knife to sort of you know mold mold the clay with and um so that's what we did and um the longer takes what we what we found was when we were storyboarding a sequence or talking about a sequence we would say where where's the cut point and sometimes it might be someone climbing out climbing out of a trench and you kind of go well if they're climbing out of a trench the natural cut point is they climb out of frame and then they walk into a shot where they're coming out of coming out over the top which is the the natural Mm -hmm. cut that you've seen literally a billion times you know in in any in any film if it be walking through a door or climbing over a, a trench or whatever but we wanted to sort of say well what happens if you well what we're in that person's head at that moment and if you as a human being or as a soldier at that time was going to climb up and over a trench and potentially be shot what's the most fascinating moment to capture is actually as you're climbing up and over the trench oh yeah so instead of cutting why not just read the person's emotions and uh, so that's where all that sort of came from and then we sort of said well when would you cut well i wouldn't cut now well i wouldn't cut now well i wouldn't cut now well we're running now so uh, well, we've climbed over so now we're going to run so now we're going to run uh when are you going to cut well i don't want to cut now i want to see an explosion i want to see the, his comrade get killed okay so when are we going to cut well i actually want to keep running so i want to keep running and i want to keep running and we kind of found the natural cut point to not what the audience want but what was being expressed by the actor hmm. uh, but this was all pre-blocking and pre-rehearsal so we basically engineered all of those big long takes as per what we wanted to see because not it's not going against convention it's like well if the most exciting point of the scene is someone going over the top then why cut when they're going over the top it doesn't seem any it doesn't seem (laughs) it seems fine technically but emotionally it doesn't make sense for sure so so that's why we that's why we engineered those yeah well, I'm about out of time here. Uh, this is really just incredible work. And I, I do think, honestly, the Academy is going to recognize it. So that's pretty cool. One hopes, but it's nice to be recognized as, as we are, as, as, as a nominee. It's lovely. I mean, my first nomination, and I never, ever, 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 ever in a million years thought that I would be nominated for an Academy Award. So mm. it's a very humbling experience. But um, yeah. Well, congratulations and thank you so much for taking the time to talk. My How are you? I'm excited. <laughs> I bet you're excited. Congratulations on your nomination. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, pretty uh, incredible. So obviously, this is uh, you know, this is a film that just screams sound. There's a lot to discuss, but I guess first and foremost, World War One is not an era that is known for having a lot of surviving recordings of its audio being in the 1910s what kind of research did you guys do to try and figure out what the guns and the tanks and the weaponry and the environment would have sounded like yeah good point uh it, there is actually hardly any uh sonic reference of of that time which uh makes it 
quite tricky um, to, if you think about historical accuracy, because we, we just don't have any uh, material of the time. We did, of course, uh, some research um, and what we found was uh, actually some very interesting letters that soldiers um, had written to their loved ones back home. And in these, uh, in these letters, they kind of uh, describe what they would hear at the front line and they would give ammunition nicknames and that sort of thing. But then these, these descriptions, they were all a bit um, different, of course, because mm-hmm. uh, it's the, it's the, yeah, the, the, the fault of every single soldier and this is very subjective. So it uh, kind of sparked uh, an idea to really approach this film from a rather emotional perspective. Um, and then go with how would the soldiers actually hear things based on their emotional uh, state they're in. You know, because many times when you're in a state of fear, you you would hear things in a different way. It's like when you're as a kid uh, at home alone and it's dark and you're kind of scared, then suddenly you would hear all the cracks of the windows and you would mm. hear dusk corns move in the, in the air. So for us, it was very important to create a soundscape that would always match the emotional state that the soldiers were in. And in that regard, that meant not being um, technically uh, accurate or historically accurate, because sometimes, you know, when they faced the, the tanks for the first time, they had such an enormous psychological impact on on the soldiers because they had not yet faced them before. So um, they needed to sound uh, um, threatening, but that doesn't mean that um, the sound, the original sound from these tanks back then would have uh, provided that. So we kind of shaped uh, the sound of the tanks. uh, So the impact would be way more, um, way stronger on the soldiers. And that was kind of the general approach for, for the film. Well, speaking of the subjective experience, um, there's a scene kind of early on where the soldiers are all in one of it wouldn't be called a bunker, I guess, but you know they're they're in the the shelter and it gets blown up, and then afterwards you have the audio distortion. Um, tell me a little bit about creating the sound of kind of shell shock, like when Paul is pulled out of the rubble. Yeah, uh, actually, actually, a lot of credit of the. Um... For that scene goes to my partner sound designer Frank Cruz. Um, so it is in 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 fact um, indeed a very intense sequence because you know the the topic or the 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 issue that the film is dealing with is that transformation of the soldiers from being um, super enthusiastic about war when they have not yet been there. And then when they finally get to see the true face of of war, um, that all really changes very quickly into, you know, horror, terror, and and devastation. So in a way, that bunker scene is a a condensed version of that. um, Mm. Because right before they try to, uh, they're really excited about shooting their first uh, French soldiers. And then, uh, like uh, one minute later, they are trapped in that bunker or shelter of the trench and almost dying. And there was a true first shift in how they actually thought about all this. This is the first moment where they really fear uh, for their lives. So the impact had to be um, enormous, um, also sound wise. you know, when he then um, is kind of, when he's kind of buried, when they, when they um, uh, buried in the, in the collapsed bunker, going for um, that sound with like him being in a sort of bubble uh, really was a way to sonically explain what, what happened in his head in that moment, like the whole illusion of um, or the whole idea of doing glorious things at the front line collapsed just like the bunker collapsed. Oh, that's poetic. 
Yeah. <laughs> you talked about sound effects and obviously certain things that you wanted to make historically accurate, certain things you didn't. But I was curious, tell me a little bit about the work that you did with the Foley team and all the mud squishing sound effects, because that's so ever present here. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. A very good point. I'm glad you bring that up uh, because the Foley team, they, they put in a lot of effort. But it already started earlier, actually, um, on the set, uh, mm. because that set that was created, that battlefield, um, it was not only visually uh, uh, like um, mind blowing. It also was a, let's say, a, a sonic playground. Mm. If you have hundreds of extras um, running through mud, that is a very unique unique sound if, if they walk through the trenches they're also filled with water it's a, it's a very unique sound so very early on um, we got in touch with the production sound mixer and and he was totally up to record like everything we 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 came up with so he did lots of wild tracks of uh, of things like that uh, people falling into mud people walking from mud, people uh, running from mud, people getting stuck in mud, like the whole team, they got stuck in mud every day. <laughs> and um, so that gave us a very, um, very um, useful library that we started off with. And then coming back to the Foley department, um, because we had that really nice um, layer to start with, they, uh, they were able to focus on the very specifics. and. Um, you know, if you record mud is, uh, and the whole movie is full of footsteps in mud, it's quite difficult to uh, create um, like different mud. <laughs> kind, yeah. mud kind, uh, kind of sounds the same, but they came up with really uh, interesting ideas and they created um, layers that sounded like mud, but they were created of something totally different. They Mm. They had uh, created blocks of silicon. Oh. And I think it was like medical silicon, the kind of stuff you use for uh, implantants. Yeah, yeah. I think. And, uh, and like if you squeeze that stuff, it suddenly starts to sound like, like mud, even though it's totally dry. Oh, wow. I really had to go there and look at it myself because I wouldn't believe. Um, they said, like, I don't know, it was uh, was an accident that happened, and then they wanted to do something else, and then finally they squeezed it and were like, ooh, that sounds, <laughs> it sounds like footsteps in the mud, you know? Um, so there was one very interesting um, thing they, they used. And so coming back to the, um, to the different layers, um, so they collected uh, different sounds of mud uh, and then uh, created like this little library. And thereby they were using the library, they were able to have, you know, um, to differentiate uh, between mud for like the soldiers and other people walking through mud. So it was quite a, um, a big effort that went into the whole mud business. Yeah, I love that. I want to believe that at some point there was someone going like with their mouth to like, <laughs> oh, you're nodding, was there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's well, funny. A Foley artist, he's always up for, actually it was two of them, but they're, they're always up for adding, uh, you know, to vocalize things really. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, at this point, I, I'm not, I, I don't know if they did it, uh on this film but actually i i wouldn't be surprised at all <laughs> oh man tell me a little bit about working with volker bertelman on um that score especially i thought it was really interesting you have this this drum like sound that comes in like a gunshot i assume there was some back and forth between your team and him to create that sound yeah good point i i think you know volker is he really is the man what he brought to the table with his score is uh, just incredible. But maybe you might be surprised there actually wasn't so much of a communication going on between him and us, mm. uh, which is, is actually normal, you know. Um, 
everybody is trying to finish in time in a way. So everybody's very busy with his own stuff, but um, we exchange like bounces to get an idea what the other one was doing. And the whole actual intense collaboration really happened on and at the mixing stage, really, when, mm. when all the elements came together and we really knew um, what we were um, what we were playing and um, and then decided which elements would tell the story the best way in each and every moment. So um, this is the moment um, at the stage where you really um, need to work together. And and Volker, uh, he's just the most lovely guy. Like uh, you know, if if nobody tries to protect his uh, assets, kind of you know, uh, that's when the collaboration really um, is at its best. And I think we had that situation from from the beginning to the end of the mix. It was. Uh, such a wonderful way of like going for the same goal and and mm. you know uh if it turns out that some themes work would work better without certain sound elements and better with the music go for it and uh, vice versa so um yeah the collaboration was uh, amazing well i think unfortunately i'm about out of time but excellent work on this film um I don't have time to ask you about it, but I love the sewing machine transition. I was going to talk about that, but yeah, yeah that really nice. cool stuff. But thank you so much and uh, best of luck this Oscar season. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Wieder mehr als 40.000 Tote allein in den letzten Wochen. Es ist vorbei. Im Namen der Menschlichkeit, ich bitte Sie um den Waffenstillstand. Vous avez 72 heures pour accepter nos conditions. Ich werde nicht kapitulieren. Meine Mutter wollte nicht, dass ich in Krieg ziehe. Ich wollte ihnen zeigen, dass ich das kann. Ach, Paul. Ja, meine Hose kommen. I heard that All Quiet had a pretty shockingly modest budget. I heard it was about 20 million US dollars. Would you say that's probably accurate? Uh, about, yes. Wow. So tell me a little bit about kind of stretching a pretty small budget to make a very expensive looking movie in terms of having expansive sets, expansive realistic looking sets. I don't know how you guys did that. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, well... I, I would say, first of all, team effort. Yeah. So, I mean, when I first uh, met Edward in August, when was it? August 2020, we, we just like talked about what we wanted to achieve. And I think the key, the key thing was for us to be always close to our main character. So mm -hmm. we would only build and manufacture sets that would accommodate him his movement and um and for sure james camera crew and edward and james because it was the middle of COVID, i mean they locked themselves in for for weeks in a hotel room in berlin and when they came out of this hotel room and they had a a pretty uh, precise storyboard and that storyboard was that was key for us yeah it you know um we then started you know like creating all the the ground floor plans all our drawings were just like basically going towards that storyboard and so it did not matter what we built we we used 
every square inch of it. You know, there's not one that there's not one waste of one wood plank you wouldn't see <laughs> in the movie. So, and and I think that was that was actually um, the, the the key aspect that we were you know we tried to um, be. I mean, it's a German cliche. I would say as efficient as possible um, <laughs> uh, to to what what we were doing, and that went through all the departments, and 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 it was a it was a, a wonderful process of prepping this thing because everybody just like always went in one direction, and there was actually no no fighting, no quarrels inside the team. I mean. And it it showed us that we can do a movie like that, you know, like as I as I say, hand in hand, <laughs> uh, without fighting, having a lot of fighting in front of the camera. Yeah, but, I was gonna say it's ironic, but, but not but not behind the camera, and and trying to be as precise as possible, and um, and it was all about making uh, it uh, feel as as real and humanely uh, the, our approach was always di dictated by the environment that we were in and what the characters were going through to design all the spaces around the needs and the movement of our main character and um, and also just always going back to the book and um, to the novel and going back to the source material that was very very key for us so so you know let's go in a little bit further to some of those spaces Tell me about designing your battlefield and your trenches. How big was the area you were actually working with? Our football, we were about four football fields, and we found a you know a very good location, um, like fifty kilometers outside of Prague, uh, called Milovice, and it was an old it was an old airport actually. So it had all the runways, and and then we we had basically flat. Threat, flat Greenland between those runways, mm. and 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 that's where we started digging. You know, it's like we we just like drew topogra topographical maps, and then we had just like we started with about fifteen diggers, and each digger had a, a section in it, and um, you know we had we had craters that were three meter deep we had ones which were only one meter deep and we had about 250 meters of running trench and 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 because it was you know authenticity was key also i mean the, the you know we only used materials that that they would have used in 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 1917 1918 yeah so we didn't use any uh, sub, uh, sub, how do you call it? Substitutions, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know all the tech drawings for the trenches originated uh, originated in original drawings. Uh, we also found in archives. We incorporated all this information in our elevations, but enlarged them slightly to accommodate actors and James camera crew. And then we, uh, the, the, you know, we had the wood used wood. Which we assembled from a lot of different locations of all over Czech Republic and Germany, and then the untreated wood we added had to go through a process of burning, sandblasting, mm. you know, adding foundation color. Uh, after all the trenches were built, the ceiling painters added the final patina and then merged all the surfaces together again, and then lots of gloss added because we wanted to the trenches to look damp all the time so i mean water was also important you know so. yeah how much water did you have on there especially for some of those you know those blast holes like the one where he's in when the guy's dying next to him well i mean that was a special crater i mean that basically the, the, it had a it had a concrete foundation so that the, the water wouldn't slip away and we could also kind of keep it um keep it a little bit warm because the, this 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 scene was shot actually for four days in a row uh, um so yeah but we, i mean we had uh we had a mud crew and a, and a water crew stand by all the time and Tell me about uh, the mud crew because di did you guys like bring in specialty mud or did you just work with what existed naturally there 
well, there were, I mean, wonderful greens men on, on this job, but because they did so little green, we just like, um, we baptized them a mud crew. <laughs> and, but we would, we would do ex really, really a lot of research kind of how the earth would behave when it's wet, when it's dry out, which color it would have, how does the earth spread out after an explosion? Um, which particles would fly around, uh, how would they settle? And, you know, because the, the the diggers, they can only dig square holes, basically, all the modulation of 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 the crater land, you know, and like uh, where there's burnt earth also. I mean, that was all done uh, manually and and we brought about uh, like a lot of, I mean, basically a lot of cubic meters with, different colors and of earth into the battlefield because the, the battlefield itself the, the earth that was there was was very clay based and so it just like it, it becomes when it's wet it becomes like a chewing gum you know once you stuck in there you know you can't get out anymore i mean the, the, you know it's it's it, it it's, it's it's a true story that actually james our cameraman kind of got really stuck in the in the mud after a shooting day and he couldn't get out by himself so <laughs> so we had to bring a forklifter in to to actually get him out of the mud oh it my was god. Uh, it's it was yeah it was quite an undertaking oh my god that's insane so was he like up to his waist in the mud like yeah. how precisely oh my god that's crazy well, let me ask you about, um, obviously, a lot of the film is in these trenches, but then you wanted to have this big contrast with the generals and the aristocrats who are deciding the fate of the war. So tell me about creating some of those very wealthy, upscale environments. Well, the, I mean, it 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 all starts like, I mean, the whole side plot is is basically the the, the, the negotiating piece in those uh, in in those train cars mm -hmm. yeah? and uh, and I, and that was a beautiful design work because uh, for bringing the german delegation to to this uh, 1918 meeting the french had assembled the train uh, or their train was a special saloon car which had once belonged to napoleon the third you know that mm. the, the car was decorated with with old imperial emblems you know and you know basically to to show off you know show off french power and um uh, and so th those two trains really met in the middle of the forest and what we did is uh, you know after heavy research again and and um, being so lucky to to contact the community of heirs um, of the original manufacturer, uh, and oh, then cool. and then recreated the, the the all the interior of those cars were then uh, recreated on stage, and we took it to the detail of having everything produced, including brass coat hangers, toilet handles, everything was produced basically, and then. The exterior was also great because we we found two museum wagons of the of the same series, and we we brought them actually into the into the forest, oh. and then and then added all the emblems, the lettering with magnets, as we were not allowed to stick anything on on those historic surfaces, <laughs> and then and then uh, wonderful uh, visual effects department. Uh, it duplicated them, uh, you know, in digital extensions, and the locomotive actually was then built 3D. And then, adding towards that, I mean, there are wonderful kind of, there's a wonderful Renaissance architecture in, in Czech Republic, uh, which kind of suited us because it kind of looks very, it looked very lookalike towards what we had, would have found in Belgium or France. Mm. And so we started to. To, to search for abandoned places, basically. And we, we, we went into those castles, which were absolutely magnificent, uh, but abandoned. And we kind of dressed them, painted them, put wallpapers up from scratch uh, inside. And out of all those buildings, we then, who, who were, you know, those buildings were all over the place, actually, sometimes like 150 kilometers away from each other. But out of all those buildings, we then created this one 
French town where the German soldiers retreat to, mm. to merge it together in, in kind of one town, you know, which had a church, church interior, big mansion, uh, where the command was, uh, yeah. And basically the, the, this kind of arriving of our main character in that town, in this, in this crazy architecture, was actually uh, supposed to be like like you know the, the the final set of apocalypse now you know it's like completely crazy everything is burning everybody is drunk everybody's doing something nobody understands anymore what they were doing and uh you know and that that's how it all came together yeah well it really just incredible work um that that town space that's pretty crazy how you guys stretch together so many disparate locations and i guess it's part of the reason your team got nominated for visual effects. I guess the last thing I was curious about is at the very beginning, um, peace, well, not quite peacetime, but early Germany, you know, when the boys are still coming out of school and it looks very different in tone and color and light. Uh, tell me a little bit about those kind of more happy environments before everything just gets obliterated by the war. Well, originally Paul uh, would have uh, would have been based in in what we call in Germany Gründerzeit, so it's like like it's a little bit of kind of Victorian, you know. But that was was a rare find in in Czech Republic, and uh, again, the small cities on the northern border had kind of a heavy influence of Bohemian, like Böhmisch architecture mm -hmm. and that didn't seem right. And so we decided in 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 the end that the that the architecture of Prague itself, like again, Renaissance, but grander style, uh, could have been found in several German cities uh, of that time. So we we then started kind of dressing the streets of Prague with, with, with German shop facades, you know, and, and what we did also uh, in visual effects, we, we basically took all the landmarks of 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 the capital of of Czech Republic away, so there's no there's no castle of Prague in frame anymore. So they were all erased in order to to make the audience believe that we are in a kind of yeah middle sized German town. And then and then was a we found a, a old uh, monastery actually, mm -hmm. uh, and that was all abandoned also and normally we would push to more destruction and here we did it the other way around so we, we took this abandoned place and renovated it basically very carefully like um and 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 chose the i mean the only fresh colors you will see in the movie are in 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 Paul's school mm -hmm. and we we wanted to show kind of uh, out of which kind of safe so environment he he would start his journey you know mm -hmm. with and um no but all those locations of the german town were basically uh found in prague itself every time you talk you make me more and more uh impressed with the vfx team's work and how they collaborate with you i think that is very cool and i it sounds like you both richly deserved your oscar nominations so Thank you so yeah. much for taking the time to talk. You know, I, I wanted to tell you, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I'm part of a website that, you know, we discuss awards races and people do think that you might be a dark horse to win the Oscar just because <laughs> you're nominated for best picture and Babylon is not. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll see. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. It's like, I mean, the, the nomination itself is is such uh you know it's such an honor and i i think that you know that i mean all, i mean the next week we're all going to the BAFTAs, you know and mm -hmm. every every single craft of this movie is nominated for a BAFTA, and That's... nearly all members of craft just like nominated for the oscars and so, so cool. and this shows what it was it was just like like a team effort you know where no no department could have done it without the other department and i think that shows and oh yeah thank you so much christian and good luck at both the baftas and the oscars thank you so much for having me william of course Fließende Frieden. <laughs> Ich hab Angst vor dem, was kommt. Ah!
musst jetzt tapfer sein. Für die, die es nicht geschafft haben. Für uns alle. This is Daniel Bayer with Next Best Picture. And we are here with Heike Merker from the hair and makeup team of All Quiet on the Western Front. Heike, how are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> well, um, so Heike, All Quiet on the Western Front, a classic of German literature that has made a worldwide impact in the decades since it uh, was written. What was it like to work on a new film adaptation, the first German film adaptation of this of this novel? I mean, when I um, when Malte Gruner, the producer, approached me with that project, um, of course, I knew immediately what it was because we had we had the book in school. So, you know, um, and I was like, wow, that's definitely um, a very good um, material for a movie. And especially when it comes from the German side, um, I think it's time. And I was um, immediately up for and then working on the movie later on. And so this was a while. And then, you know, we had like certain things and they had to green light. They had to wait for green light and everything. But then, you know, when it came to work on the movie, it was very intense. Um, we had a um, it was COVID time. I mean, we had the first lockdown, this was done, but then we all thought like it's getting better and that suddenly, you know, it went up again. Mm. So it was a bit like, oh my God. So we were not allowed to really like being with people together and so, and all the tests. But anyhow, from coming to the movie, it was um, um, very, very special and very nice and uh, hard also working on it but the group of people like Edward and Malter and James the DOP and Lizzie Crystal the costume designer so those people I'm working very close with were wonderful and this was um, so such a great collaboration which I think made the movie also for me. It's really, really great to hear. I can imagine you know like so much of this film it looks very of a piece all of the colors of the production design and the costume design and in many cases the makeup it all creates this you know palette of colors that we're looking at did you work a lot with those other design teams to figure out how the film is going to look um, yeah, sure. So that's when you start prepping a movie, you know, so these are the moments where you need because you don't know, like you can read the script, but you still don't know, like how the movie will end, you know, at that point or look at that point. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, it's like the first person I um, need and I'm in contact with is a costume designer. So this is a collaboration, which is um, very important to, 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 you know, to get her feeling, to get her view, to, um, I was part in each and every costume fitting with her um, to, to, to learn more about the characters, what they wear, how much they wear, like, what is free where are cuts like so when when we had a fitting we discussed all of it you know oh yeah let's take something here so then i we already like at that point we had a little red piece of um cloth you know and we were just pinning it okay we need something here so that later on we can remember how big and how long so this is definitely a um, um a key a collaboration for me and then also um the breakdown department which is part of the costume um but still they're working separately um this was another very important um thing for me because uh, what colors they're using what is um what are they doing with all the costumes you know how much they're breaking it down so I learned this and then you have art department and um, and set deck, you know, and from there I could learn like um, about the texture of all the soil, what's on the battlefield, the mud, like I could look up, you know, the sketches they had. So, yeah, this gives me all this gives me a lot of 
you know, material to, to grow into it. And apart from this, they are always start so much earlier than I. So I always, I always feel I'm behind, you know, and I have to keep running and to get everything together to, 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 to be up to where they are. And, and then, yeah. So, um, then we started with the first test in terms of like, uh, what is dirt? How is, how is the dirt? Like what kind of colors? I mean, I had the color palette from the breakdown department and from the, the, the prop department. It wasn't enough for me. And of course I could not use their products. So we had right. to produce our own makeup dirt palettes. And so this takes a while to, mix colors to mix it in different consistencies from very thin to very like clay thick so that whatever is going on or happening during that movie so you have already your little color palette and tools you can apply and do stuff of course you break that down in the beginning but then different things happening while you shoot so you can't prepare everything in advance during prep time. So you always need to have a lot of um, stuff handy right away to react mm -hmm. on the day. Sure. Uh, you mentioned the the dirt and getting it to achieve all these different consistencies. I don't think I had ever thought so much about all the many different colors of dirt that exist in this world as well watching this movie in the near the beginning of the movie the main character he gets falls down under and he comes up and his face is very dark almost black and then later in the film that happens again and it has a more gray or, or white color to it almost was that something that was in the script or was that your idea to have this sort of contrast between earlier and later in the film? I mean, these are a, two very different stages, right? Mm -hmm. So the first one is like straight the beginning when they are coming, they're very young, they're very fresh, they really are so proud to be soldiers. And then the first explosion and, you know, he was like covered in earth and you know the, the the bunker collapsed and everything so um for me in the script it wasn't described in the script it, it just like that the bunker collapsed and then i was like okay what happened then and uh, how how we taking the stuff and i was just like okay it definitely needs so he needs to be covered and um, and he needs to be covered in even here you say like it's there are so many colors in so there is like a lighter gray a darker gray so that and we also don't know how long he really was under those you know things and stuff and then he is watching his other fellow next to him um who is already dead yeah so i mean no it was not in the script it was just uh, an idea i had we definitely need to we need to give him something different after the situation he went through um and then it was also fantastic that he went on and on went on and then he 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 seen his friend who passed away so this was one thing and the second one i mean apart from what happening during the movie and all of this the second one was also was not planned and we um of course he had his dirt he had a dirty face. He already had like several layers because he came from a situation. He had a lot of water. He was running. He was sweating. So some came off. Then he was falling again. So he had another um, bunch of colors in his face. And then he jumped into the crater. And this was a moment where Edward was saying like, oh, no, you have to dig your, 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 your face into the mud, into the mud we have had not expected that and then oh um, yeah, yeah 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 so and then when he came up turned around and walked over to the other side through the water to the French soldier it all came off yeah oh no but the camera was from a different angle so we haven't seen that and then I was like listen Edward this already came off I think it's a very good 
look on top of all those layers we already have they're still there but we want to have like another half face you know or a two face or whatever you want to name it with that consistency now because i think it's a very nice element and then um doing now we are coming back to my prep time and to mm -hmm. the different mud consistencies and clay consistencies and all different colors so of course i had that kind of color and i also still changed the color a bit to make to, to really show another three-dimensional um layer mm. to to, to those dirt colors which were already underneath yeah and yeah so this is basically how it started so it was very no it was a surprise at the beginning but I think it was a very good surprise mm -hmm. and it was a very good look and um, these are the moments in movies you have to um embrace also yeah. and you have to you know take it and make something out of it and uh, so we I think this is a very iconic look absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and also like how James captured you know when he came with his camera around to his face and then when he looked up it's such a wonderful moment and such a perfect angle for his you know how he looks like I love the whole thing so yeah yeah, it, it's a great look. Um, and we have time for just one more question that I hope we can get through quickly. But I had to ask because you have so many bodies in this film and all of them are having dirt and blood and all these things ripped off. Did When you're prepping all these bodies, whether they're actors or you know, dummies or whatever for this, did you look at each one and know like, okay, this is what happened to them that when they got killed so you know that this one has a bullet hole to the face or the shoulder or this one just got splattered or blown up or how yeah. much of that did you do i mean it's not that i personally do that right <laughs> i i i definitely i'm aware of each and every character i'm aware of the situation they're in i know if, if we already shot something what the continuity is like what do we want to add which color do we want to add i'm I'm, um, yeah, I'm pretty much on top of it. Um, and uh, I'm always next to the camera. So from the first rehearsal, so that I can see, and then of course I'm switching to the monitor so that I really see like who is really in, that we focus on. So I get my team together so that we know these are the people we need to focus on this and that mm -hmm. setup. Um, so we really have to make sure that those are great with this and this and this color. I mean, they're all coming ready on set, but, you know, during the day and especially putting on the mask because we had that problem. Right. Like every take. So we always had to redo and check the situation, like, are they still okay for our, you know, for the next setup? So yeah, I'm 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 so in the morning basically I'm going through all the scenes and I'm making an announcement to each and everyone where we are. I'm picking before I'm picking. We have a big continuity folder. I'm taking out the fixtures, um, where we want to go, and then I'm everyone get a pin on his mirror, and then this is yeah yeah. No, I'm yeah, definitely. I I I had an eye on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's incredible work, the magnitude and the scale of it, and even just on one person, as we were talking about with with Paul and that that clay face. It it's great work, and thank you so much for your work yeah. on the film. Thank you so much for talking with us today, and best of luck with the Oscars. <laughs> hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews with the Oscar-nominated cinematographer for All Quiet on the Western Front, James Friend, the sound designer Marcus Stemmler, and production designer Christian M. Goldbeck, followed by Dan Baer's interview with the Oscar-nominated makeup artist, Heike Merker. All Quiet on the Western Front is nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best International Feature, and Best Adapted Screenplay, and is available for your consideration in all nominated categories. 
You have been listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.